Welcome to Cultural Conversations with the International Hub. We are committed to helping you navigate global business. Throughout this series, we will have conversations with global business professionals and experts. Hello, my name is Dylan Papenfuss, and today I'm here interviewing Bill O'Rourke. Bill, will you please tell us a little bit about your background, such as where are you from, where you received your education, and what you're up to now? Sure. I was uh, born and raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh have lived there all my life with a couple of assignments uh, outside of Pittsburgh and outside of the country. Uh, I was uh, got an undergraduate degree at John Carroll University, uh, a Bachelor of Science and a Bachelor of Arts. I took additional courses at the University of Pittsburgh, uh, enough that uh, I would qualify as an industrial engineer. Uh, after college, I went into the U.S. Army, and I was a captain in the Transportation Corps. When I got out of the Army, I went to work for U.S. Steel Corporation as an industrial engineer and went to law school at the same time. When I graduated from law school, I got hired by Alcoa. At the time, they were the largest aluminum company in the world, and they hired me as a patent attorney. And uh, then a couple years later, they asked me to run the patent department, and I became patent counsel. Then they asked me to uh, run the administrative part of the, the entire legal department, so I was assistant general counsel. Uh, and then I was lured out of the legal business. Uh, I was asked to be vice president of procurement and ran that organization for a while, then formed and ran uh, Global Business Services, where we handled all the transactions of all the 400 locations in Alcoa, uh, through service centers that were located in North America, South America, Australia, and Europe. Then I was asked to be the corporate auditor, which is interesting. Uh, chief information officer, which was surprising. When I knew Control-Alt-Delete, they put me in charge of IT. Uh, and a job I had three times under three different CEOs was uh, vice president of environment, health, safety, and sustainability. And that's a great job to have in Alcoa because environment, health, and safety is an articulated value of the company. And to work in that area is is a lot of fun because everybody thinks they're in charge of the environment, health, and safety. Uh, another job I had uh, that was interesting to this interview was president of Alcoa Russia from 2005 to 2008. Uh, one other job I had at Alcoa was to be a board member on the Alcoa Foundation. Uh, I stayed on there even after I retired. So it seems like you really uh, worked in just about everything in your time at Alcoa. Uh, just about, from uh, operations to all the uh, administrative functions, and even the areas where I didn't work, like marketing, uh, quality control, uh, they were under my supervision at different times. So, yes, I had a very broad experience, and I was very fortunate. That was good for me. So let's talk about your time as uh, president of Alcoa Russia. Um, how did the process go of you going from working in the United States to being uh, being named president of Alcoa Russia? What was that entire process like, including moving and that kind of stuff? Okay, maybe some background. In the 1990s, Alcoa was growing substantially around the world. We had bought the aluminum industry of Italy, Spain, Hungary. We were building facilities in China, Iceland, Brazil. Uh, we were buying our competitors in the U.S. like Alumax, Cordon Technology, Reynolds Metals. So we were growing dramatically. And in the 90s, our CEO actually went to uh, Russia. Paul O'Neill was the CEO at the time. By the way, 
he was the most enlightened leader I've ever known in my life. Uh, he went to Russia and came back and said the place was so bad he wouldn't put his people there. He wouldn't put his employees there. We're not going to go there. Uh, so by 2005, we thought the situation in Russia had changed enough that we could do business there. And we went in to buy two gigantic manufacturing plants and an office in Moscow. Uh, this was a really big operation, but it was in terrible, terrible shape. Everything was bad. Everything. Uh, uh, I, I could name everything, but everything was wrong. They had been neglected since Perestroika, which was the early 90s, and they hadn't done any housekeeping, any capital investment. The safety record was deplorable. The pricing was wrong. They didn't have good compensation systems. Everything was wrong. So if you think about that, what kind of person do you want to send? And and if you look at my background that I had, I'd worked in a number of different areas. And as I reflect on that, I think the reason I was given opportunities in all these different areas wasn't because I knew the function, that's for sure, but I think it was largely in part that I had built a reputation for integrity and trust. And if you think about the Russian situation, that's kind of what they needed there. Uh, so I was I was sent there to instill the Alcoa values into this very big operation. Had uh, about 16,000 employees, about a billion dollars in revenue, uh, and we were going to put in about 750 million of capital investment over the next three years. Uh, so what the corporation did was surround me with very good operators, people who knew how to install equipment, how to run an operation, and and some good sales folks. Uh, uh, from uh, England and Australia that really knew how to sell into the aluminum markets. So I was supported with 68 expats from eight different countries, uh, and my job, my primary job, was to bring the Alcoa values into that operation. It, it was very challenging. Uh, when I showed up, uh, I went. I decided to live in the city of Samara, which is about 750 kilometers southeast of Moscow. Uh, the operation there was the biggest in all of Alcoa. This plant sat on 388 acres. It had 129 buildings, 8,200 employees just at this location. It had the biggest forging press in the world, the biggest extrusion press in the world, almost the biggest rolling mill in the world. This was one really, really big operation, and, and uh, it was in such terrible shape. So one of the first things I did was trans, uh, translate the Alcoa values. There were seven articulated values, beginning with integrity, included environment, health, and safety, accountability, people. I had them translated into the Russian language and posted in each of those 129 buildings. When you walked in the door, you saw Alcoa's values in Russian. And I wanted the people to at least know what they were on paper. And then we worked on uh, training and teaching what that really meant. We have different cultural values all throughout the world. Um, was there any miscommunication when it came to communicating Alcoa's cultural values to the Russian employees? Uh, in, uh, there were lots of miscommunications, uh, not just in communicating the values. In the values, they were pretty sure that they were just words on the piece of paper uh, because that's the way the Russian culture operates. Uh, I know you wanted to talk a bit about regulations in other countries. In Russia, I took a look at, for example, the environmental regulations. They're as good as any nation on earth. They are stellar, and, and they call for real environmental stewardship on the part of everyone in the country. Yet they aren't enforced at all. So the regulations are just words on a piece of paper. And that's the way that the Russians look at almost everything. 
so if you write your articulated values, they say, oh, that's fine, but what do you really mean? Because you don't enforce uh, any other regulations in this country. Why are you going to enforce your values? So that, that became a real challenge. So what I decided to do, we, we had seven articulated values, but I decided I'm, I'm going to lead with safety. I'm going, to be, I'm going to pick out safety and show the people what we really mean. My hope was that if we got safety right, we would get the other values to follow accordingly. And safety, we, we in Alcoa knew how to train for safety, how to put people in protective equipment, uh, how to put the processes uh, uh, to have a safe uh, workflow. Uh, so that's what we focused on. Trained 8,000 people the first year, 6,000 the next year. And I tried to attend as much of that training as I could to show the support for the training program. Then we put people in protective equipment. When I showed up, people weren't wearing hard hats, safety glasses, earplugs, heat-resistant clothing. I saw women walking in a bathhouse with molten metal. They have high heel shoes and skirts on, stepping over molten metal. It would just turn your stomach. Uh, these two facilities were in terrible shape safety-wise. They didn't wear the safety equipment, had no safety training, no safety meetings. They were killing five people a year. The facilities were 50 years old, and for 50 years, they averaged five deaths a year, industrial fatalities. That's terrible. You don't kill people in Alcoa plants. So I decided to focus on that. The first full calendar year that Alcoa was in Russia was 2006. There were no fatalities that year. Now, the Russians will tell you that was good luck. It wasn't good luck. It was a lot of hard work and effort. Uh, we would uh, distribute this heat-resistant clothing. It was a navy blue jacket with a white reflective strip on it. What I found interesting was I would walk the city of Samara, and every now and then I'd see somebody wearing that jacket in town. They be that became a sense of pride. They started to be proud of the company they worked for and that actually wore their work jacket around the city, which I found pretty interesting. And then they started to work even harder on safety, and the employees started to talk about it. Uh, their incident rate when I got there was 10 times higher than the Alcoa average. They're now currently lower than the Alcoa average. Uh, they have now gone seven years without a fatality in these Russian plants in a very difficult environment like Russia. So I think by focusing on safety and leading with safety, we were able to show that we are serious when we write these things on a piece of paper. And we are going to enforce them, and we're going to support you with uh, meetings and equipment and training, et cetera. Uh, so I think that was a, a good move to lead with safety. When, when I arrived, I, uh, I learned early on that these two facilities that we had, really big facilities, they used to have a lot of celebrations. Uh, so we weren't making any money at the, in the early days, so I wanted to – send the message that we're not going to have so many celebrations, and I was waiting for just the right one. So I heard that on May the 9th, uh, the first year I was there, they were going to invite about 700 people onto the plant property, uh, have a luncheon for them, have entertainment all afternoon, and then have a dinner and more entertainment in the evening. And I thought, ah, this is the one. I'm going to kill this. And I, I announced just to my staff first, luckily, that I'm going, I'm going to cancel that celebration. And I had befriended a Russian. He was the managing general director of the plant. And he called me to his office. He said, I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to change our culture here of celebrations. But don't cancel this one. This one is an important one. May the 9th is the day that they celebrate the Great Patriotic War, which is what the Russians call World War II. In World War II, the Russians lost 27 million men, 
that, that died in that war. That's incredible. And what they were inviting were veterans from World War II onto the property. These are veterans who are poor. They don't get meals every day. And they were going to give them a couple meals and some entertainment. Uh, so he, he luckily changed my mind, taught me about the Russian culture and their respect for veterans of World War II, and, and helped me correct that mistake. So I didn't cancel that one. In fact, I got our uh, Alcoa Foundation to actually give me enough money to offer every one of those veterans either a refrigerator or new windows for their apartments, uh, which was pretty good. So wow. he, he was able to correct me. So so sometimes you just don't understand the culture and you're trying to go in one direction and you might be destroying your own reputation. Uh, and another one, and uh, uh, I, I wanted to send the message that the Russians are autocratic. Uh, the boss is always right. Uh, and I'll give you an example of that. I'm, I'm dri- I drove to work, and I always had a, a driver from the time I arrived. Uh, my driver's name was Constantine. And one day in the winter, we're driving to work, uh, and there's a lot of dogs, stray dogs, walking around our plant. Our city of Samara had a lot of stray dogs in it, and it gets cold in Russia. And the dogs want to go somewhere where it's warm. We had a lot of furnaces on our property, so they worked their way through the fences and got onto our property. And I remarked to Constantine, boy, I wish we didn't have all these stray dogs here. We have a board of directors coming next week, and what are they going to think when they see all these dogs here? So the next day we drive into work, and I look around and say, Constantine, I don't see any dogs. He says to me, you said to kill them. You believe that? (laughs) I I expressed an opinion that I wish we didn't have the dogs. He took it as an order to kill the dogs. That's astounding, but it's an example of how the boss's wish is their command and you follow it. And I I had to be really careful on what I would say in Russia. How would they communicate with you um, as a leader? Were they often careful? Um, Some some societies will tend to only give positive news. Right, extremely careful. First of all, I uh, didn't speak their language. So at first, I had to have a translator for absolutely everything I said and and everything I heard, uh, which takes at least twice as long as normal communication. Uh, Second, the Russians are autocratic. The boss is always right, so you sure don't give the boss any bad news, uh, which is a shame. Uh, So I had to work my way through that. And I I think I mentioned earlier, I had befriended the plant manager, a man named Mikhail Fedorov, and in a while, we were able to establish a relationship where he would at least be honest with me and tell me areas where I should look and things that I should get into and things that I should not get into. So I needed a friend, and I was lucky I found one early on. Oftentimes in in countries like Russia, um, the bosses usually have the biggest offices. What was that dynamic like when you went to Russia? It was astounding. They showed me my office. So I'm now the big boss. My office uh, was almost the size of a football field. It had a desk at one end and a table that ran forever. To get into my office, there were two doors that were about a foot thick. And outside of my, th- those two doors, there were two elderly women, uh, secretaries, who would and, and a security guard, and they would stop anybody who tried to see me. Uh, I had an office complex, not just that great big office. I had a conference room beside me that was just as big as my office, and no one else could use that except me. Behind my regular office was this other room that was about 40 feet by 60 feet with black leather couches in it, 
but I'm sure the Soviets used to sit there and make decisions. And then back in one corner was a 40 by 40 by 40 foot black marble men's room just for me. So this whole complex is just for me. After a month, I I went down the hall and I found a, an auditorium and I converted that auditorium into cubicles for myself and my direct reports and took my office complex and made that a conference center that anyone could use. So here I am in, in a cubicle now, and I, I arranged that cubicle in an area where people had to walk through it to get to their offices. So it was uh, procurement, IT, uh, quality, HR, and uh, and they had to walk through here. So I wanted to show them that we're accessible. You can, like, walk up and say hello or something like that rather than stay in that fortress that I was given when I first arrived there. And then the bosses, uh, the, especially the Russian bosses, would suggest to me that I have to go back to the big office. Uh, they would invite me to meetings with customers and would go to the customer's president's office, and it would be enormous. And they'd say, see, this is the kind of office you should have. I had one guy come up to me one day. He said, I'm telling our, our one supplier that you're the boss, and he doesn't believe it because you're in a cubicle. So I was trying to change the culture there. And really, if you think going into cubicles with people at that level should send a message of openness, honesty, and transparency, and I think it did. How did switching that floor plan style, what benefits did you notice from that? So we knew we were going to be laying off employees as we got more and more uh, productive in, in the operation. So at one of our staff meetings, I asked our our Russian staff, what's your severance policy here? If we let somebody go, are they going to be compensated? And they said, we don't have a severance policy. So I said, well, what's the law in Russia? And they said, the law is you have to give them uh, three weeks' pay. And these people weren't paid very much. Uh, so I suggested that Alcoa's compensation system is generally based on fairness. So let's come up with a fair severance policy. And we decided that three months' pay would, would be fair. So we put in a policy of three months pay. And the HR manager says, I'll handle the layoff. And the way she did it, she called people in her office and she said, you're getting laid off. You can get three months pay or three weeks pay and it's up to me. If I give you three months pay, you have to give me a kickback of this much money. you believe that? She was exporting wow. employees on the way out of the company, which is astounding. So the way I found out about that I'm working in a cubicle. A young 19-year-old clerk in the HR department felt free enough to walk up to me and tell me that this might be happening. So I was able to learn about this because I wasn't in that fortress. If I was still in the fortress, I might still not know to this day. Wow. So the dynamic between Russian employees and managers is really interesting. Um, how much input did they want to contribute when it came to making decisions? At, at the beginning, none. Uh, that's the way it worked. The boss made the decision, and you didn't question it at all. So we were trying to change that a lot. Uh, the way I did, I think I told you, I brought 68 expats from eight different countries into the operation. Uh, I'll tell you about another mistake I made. I thought at the top of the organization chart, and there's lots of people in this operation, I thought at the top, I should have an expat and a Russian in the same box on the organization chart. Uh, and that way, the expat can learn from the Russian, the Russian can learn from the expat. This would be good for communication and cooperation. Well, instead, I created a monster. The Russians really like the military kind of structure where there's one boss. 
and I gave them all two bosses, and they would play one against the other whenever they could. So I realized I, I, I made a big mistake, and I dismantled that right away. But when I dismantled it, I left half of the bosses as Russians and half of them as uh, non-Russians, trying to send a message that we need to have cooperation and communication across the different functions. Let's move into uh, things like culture shock. Um, I mean, the Russian culture is very different than the American. Um, what was your experience like moving from the United States to Russia? It was uh, quite different. I, I didn't know the language. I didn't know the culture. I didn't know the people. I didn't even know who was going to meet me at the airport. I didn't know where I was going to live. I didn't know any of the uh, customer suppliers or the government or government agencies, so I had an awful lot to learn uh, whenever I got there, and that would keep you very, very busy. Uh, my company gives uh, uh, new people going on foreign assignment get an exposure training. Well, my training was three hours long. You, you don't learn a whole lot about uh, a country of that size, 11 time zones, 150 million people. You don't learn that much in three hours. So the, the training was probably good to have, but it was uh, it sure wasn't adequate. So uh, it took a lot of reading and a lot of time to uh, get up to speed on what was really going on in Russia. And th then I wanted to learn the language as well. So about six months into the assignment, I decided to get a Russian language teacher. I couldn't go to scheduled classes because my uh, my schedule was so busy. Uh, but I did find a tutor, and I was able to uh, pick up on the language in probably a couple months. Also, you really uh, immersed yourself in the uh, culture. Totally. Yes, I started out living in a hotel, a Renaissance hotel in the city, but wanted to find an apartment uh, rather quickly, so I did. Yeah. That was interesting. When I got my apartment, I had a head of security. He was a former KGB colonel, and his name was Kalashnikov, which is a pretty interesting name for a security guy. Uh, and he came to me and said, I understand you're moving into the apartment. By the way, they knew everything that I was doing all the time. And he said, uh, do you want me to sweep the apartment for listening devices and cameras? And I said, no, wow. thank you. He'd be, he'd be planting them. I, I, I wasn't naive. I, I would bet <laughs> that my security, my security manager had two employers. Alcoa was one, but he was also working for the Russian government. I'm positive. When your time was done um, at Alcoa, Russia, how did your perspective on the United States change? I had had other foreign assignments in other countries. I, mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time in England and Germany and Japan. And every time you go to another country, you get to learn a lot of lessons. But a common one, whether it's England, Germany, Japan, or Russia, is that the people are good. Basically, people want to do right. They care about their families. They care about a living for their families, and they're, they're interested in education. I also had people working for me in Brazil, uh, Australia, and Hungary, and my experience has been the same there, too. People are basically good. They want to do what's right. Uh, they live by their values and uh, at, at the foundation level, at the family level. Uh, but then the culture and the politics and the government and the regulations, they, they all get in the way and cause the problems that we have today. Uh, I, I saw Russia when I left as uh, they were one of the richest nations on earth, or they were one of the only nations that had a surplus in their treasury. At the time I left, they had a surplus of about $700 billion, 
which is uh, enviable for any other country. Uh, no other country had a surplus. They were all in debt. Uh, they had an education system that was uh, solid, and it was one of the best on earth. Russia has the highest literacy rate on earth at 99%, even higher than the U.S. Uh, their healthcare system is strong. So I, I believe that if Russia would get some enlightened leaders that could direct uh, the country and the people in the right way, eliminate the corruption and bureaucracy that's in the way, uh, I think they could be extremely successful. Uh, yet, since I've left, I think they've gone in the other direction. Uh, they've spent a lot of that, uh, the reserves that they have, and they didn't spend it on good things like uh, roads or other things like that. Uh, but, but you get a positive impression when you go to the, the base level of the people. That's that's been my impression. That's fascinating. Thank you. Um, I guess shifting focus onto enlightened leaders, I think that's so fascinating and it's so important. In the United States, we, in business, we are enamored with, you know, these great leaders. But then we often forget about um, people like Paul O'Neill at Alcoa and the tremendous growth they were able to generate while also being an incredible citizen of the world. What are what are the ideal qualities that an enlightened leader should possess? I think first, first they have to have values, and the values have to start with integrity. Uh, they have to be open and honest. Second, they have to really support the people that are trying to accomplish the goals and objectives that they've set for themselves. And, and the enlightened leader helps with those goals by setting the vision and the strategy. But then let them go. Let the people go and give them the tools they need, whether it's education or systems or whatever, to give them the tools they need to accomplish those goals and, and get out of their way. And then continue to challenge absolutely everybody to be their best and to do their best in everything they do. I think a leader is loyal to those values, uh, even more so than to the people. And if, if if you're loyal to those values, you will be loyal to the people, at least the ones that follow those values. Moving a little bit back to Russia here, um, Russia scores a 29, uh, 29 on Transparency International's Corruption Perception Index. Just for the sake of our listeners, that puts them uh, parallel to Mali, Papua New Guinea, Mauritania, and ranking worse than countries like Pakistan, Iran, Kazakhstan, and Myanmar. What are some of the ethical issues that you face in your time there, and how did you overcome them? Uh, the first is corruption. Corruption is a way of life there. There's a general belief that if you have power or authority and you don't use it to make yourself uh, richer, then uh, you, you're at fault. Uh, we, we uh, I found it everywhere when I went to Russia. Uh, the policemen stand on the side of the road. They wave to you. That means pull over. You pull over and they detain you until you give them a few hundred rubles and go on your way. The people who were pulled over didn't do anything wrong. It's just part of this system. And then it's a pyramid scheme. So the poor police officer who takes the 500 rubles from you gives half of it to his boss, who gives half of that to his boss, who gives half of that to his boss. And that's the way the police make money. And, and it's, the reason is they're not paid. They're not paid well at all. So they try to find uh, ways to make money from the power uh, that they have. Uh, I met an emergency room doctor, and he told me his wife was pregnant, going to have twins. He went to his boss in the emergency room and said, I can't make ends meet now, and I'm going to have two more children. What am I supposed to do? 
his boss suggested to him that he should extort the patients in the emergency room. Go up to them when they come in the emergency room, tell them to give you two or three or four hundred more rubles, and you'll give them special treatment. He said, then don't give them special treatment, but they'll think they're getting special treatment, and you get a few hundred rubles. That's terrible. Uh, I knew a woman whose son was applying for college. He went to his last interview uh, to be accepted in Samara Aerospace University, one of the best schools in Russia. At the end of the interview, the president of the university, the rector, invited everybody out except the mother of this student. And he said to her, give me 9,000 rubles and your son is accepted. Uh, I said to her, what did you do? She said, I gave it to him. And I said, why? She said, I want my son to go there. Those are the rules here. She said, in fact, I thought he was going to ask for more. I gave him 12,000 rubles. That's just crazy. It's absolutely everywhere. Uh, we were buying an awful lot of equipment. We, we would bring the equipment into the city. The equipment would go into an import-export office. Somebody ran that office. He wouldn't release the equipment unless we paid him, and we wouldn't pay him. So the first year, uh, we took the position that we don't condone the, the corruption. We're not going to participate in it. We're just not going to do it. And the supply chain doesn't move. We couldn't get the goods out of the import-export office. We actually had a an aerospace plate furnace coming from Edner Company in Germany. It was coming into the city of Balaya The mayor showed up with his militia, stopped these trucks, and said, these trucks don't move till I get 25,000 U.S. dollars. All this money coming in my city, and I'm not getting any? I want 25,000 U.S. dollars. So my Russian friends are telling me we could negotiate him down to 15,000. you believe that? That we're going to negotiate down the, the uh, extortion? And, and my boss, of course, in New York, he's telling me, you do whatever it takes. He'd never tell me, pay the extortion, but he might insinuate that. So the first year, we just didn't do it. And we had a reputation in the city that you don't get paid from Alcoa. But that hurt us. I, I had a, a capital budget that first year of $100 million. I spent $20 million because, because the supply chain stopped if I wouldn't pay the extortion payments. So it delayed our break even by a year. And we didn't break even until the fourth year rather than the third. But that, that was a way of life there. But by sticking to our guns, uh, the second year we did spend $100 million legally. But the next year we spent 160 and the next year $180 million. So you can do it. You can send the message even in a difficult place like Russia. But it's not easy, not when that corruption is absolutely everywhere. Now, now, with that being said, I also realized that we were a big company, a very big company. And we were able to take a position like that. The federal government wanted us to be a success. Our investment in Russia was actually attracting other investments. So we made things like can sheet, but we didn't make aluminum cans. So aluminum can makers like Ball and Rexham and Canpack, they invested in Russia so they could take our aluminum sheet and make cans out of it. Uh, so our investment was attracting other investments. But the regions where we operated, they didn't care about the federal government. Even the mayor would uh, extort money if, if they could, which was – really different. So it was it was corruption absolutely everywhere, and that was hard to deal with and hurt us financially by a year on the break-even point. Wow, that is, uh, that's significant. I guess for different people that are going and trying to do business around the world, I mean, we have different values and standards of what is right and wrong. What is your advice for people with keeping their values and their standards while conducting business? Uh, abroad. You just have to do it. Uh, I recommend everybody going to actually articulate your own personal values. Write them down. 
Uh, and these are values that I believe have to be with you every day and all the time. They're like breathing. And, and when you start rationalizing, if you start saying, I'll just do it this once, or everybody does it, or they're a big company, or we, we can afford to pay this additional payment. If you, if you start rationalizing, you're on the brink of bad behavior. You can't do that. Uh, so articulate the values and then stick to them. And I think you're going to find there are some jurisdictions in the world where you just can't do that. Uh, one that I would suggest would be Venezuela. Uh, they're, they're very corrupt. And I don't know that you could do business in Venezuela if you weren't paying the extortion payments and the corruption payments. So then you just have to make a decision you're not going to go there or you can't do business there. Uh, but otherwise, even I learned that even in a difficult place like Russia, you can stick to your values. It might delay you on doing what's right and getting things done. Uh, but in time, you can actually send a message that you are going to stick to the values and do what's right. So wrapping up here, uh, we have a couple of final questions. Um, how do you define success? Yeah, well, that, that's that's a great question. Uh, actually, since I was 20 years old, uh, every Jan January, I would write down uh, my definition of success, and then I would write down uh, some general personal goals and objectives that I would have for myself. I've, I've reviewed that that list uh, over the years, and it's funny how it moves from being very specific to being general, uh, being uh, uh, very career-driven in terms of how much money you're going to make, what position you're going to have, what geography you're going to work in. And, and, and I used to actually articulate that. I'm going to make this much money. I'm going to be the best industrial engineer in the world. I'm going to live in the greater Pittsburgh area. Uh, and I'd get very, very specific with that. And then I look at the most recent ones. I wanted uh, success for me would be uh, to work in positions of increasing authority and responsibility, to have the opportunity to impact other people's lives, uh, and, and then follow through with things like that. So, and, and it's it's not related to geography, dollars, position at all anymore. And I think that's a natural evolution that most people go through. Uh, so mine now is to hopefully uh, open some people's eyes. And what I'm working on now is talking about uh, business ethics at colleges and universities around the country. Uh, and I, I get real joy in hopefully being able to let people know you can stick to your guns, you can have values and live by them. And uh, that's become more and more of my objective these days. So that's success for me. Uh, by the way, I also have a family. I have four grandchildren. Just had the fourth a couple weeks ago, and uh, they're of course on that list. Oh, congratulations! Yeah, thank you. Um, and I guess um, if you wouldn't mind, how would, from your experience in working with Russians while you're at uh, Alcoa, how would they define success? Uh, it would be predominantly dollar-based. Uh, that the, the more they could make, the better off they would be. However, they also have an appreciation that education leads to opportunity, which leads to those dollars. So they really would seek education. In, in Alcoa, we would typically offer special training courses at all of our locations around the world and would ask people, if you want to come in on Saturday, you could learn about the Toyota production system, for example. So I decided to offer that in Russia. And uh, one Saturday, we got a, a single professor, and a, we rented a, a classroom that would fit 30 people. We had 1,000 show up. 
for that wow. training. Yeah, that's an idea. So, so they value education in almost any area because they see education as opportunity. They see opportunity as the path uh, to make more dollars. So I, I would wow. say that uh, heavily on uh, compensation is what they're looking for in, in Russia. Uh, but then on a base level, remember what I said earlier, they all do value their families and their family life and those relationships mm -hmm. as well. But I think it's secondary in Russia. That's fascinating. Thank you. Um, and then also, also see the uh, Russian Orthodox Church making quite a comeback. Uh, the Soviet Union was in place there for about 80 years, uh, but the Russian Orthodox Church never really went away, and they're really making a comeback right now. And more and more of the Russians are attending the services uh, in the Orthodox churches, and I think uh, that, that religion is going to make a strong comeback. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, so final question. What advice would you give a business person who is planning to work in Russia? It would be pretty much what I uh, just said. It would be articulate what your values are and then make a commitment to live by them. Uh, educate the entire workforce that this is an important part of the job and then audit against it periodically and make sure that people aren't uh, just telling you the good news that they're doing all the right things. Make sure uh, by actually testing what's really going on in the operation. That's, that's excellent advice. Thank you. Actually, I have one last question. Um, from the time you started at Alcoa, Russia, um, to the time you ended or even now, um, how have things changed? How has Alcoa's investment in Russia changed? Uh, it's changed uh, a lot lately. Uh, first, first, I'd say it got an awful lot better. The, the facilities that we bought were 50 years old. So we went in in 2005, and they were a disaster. They needed to be fixed. We put in, if you count the acquisition price and all the capital investments, we put in about a billion dollars to upgrade the facilities. So the facilities got upgraded. Uh, we had uh, three primary markets. So one would have been aerospace products. And the all the aircraft in Russia needed to be replaced, and they were anticipating higher passenger miles. So there's going to be even more airplanes over there. And when they build airplanes, you use aluminum. So that was good for the aluminum industry. Uh, a second product line we had was the aluminum can, the beverage can. When I arrived in Russia, there were no aluminum cans. I would go to the supermarket. It would be either PET bottles or glass bottles, and that was it. Today, the market share in Russia is 43% uh, for aluminum cans, for beverages. Uh, and all of that aluminum is made in Alcoa's plant in the city of Samara. And the reason for that is there's a duty on can sheet coming into Russia. It's 22%. So if our biggest competitor, who's Novellus, would make can sheet in Europe and wanted to ship it into Russia, they'd have to pay 22% duty on that. Uh, so that gave Alcoa quite a big market advantage. We ought to be able to sell everything we could make, and that turned out to be the case. So those products, uh, transportation was the other one. Uh, we would make products for uh, wheels for cars and trucks, uh, sheet aluminum engine blocks uh, in the transportation area, and try to lightweight absolutely everything that moves to give it better gas mileage. Uh, and those products went pretty well. Uh, since then, uh, however, Alcoa itself, as a corporation, decided that they would split the corporation into two pieces. They took one in the upstream, which was mining, refining, smelting, 
and one in the downstream, then, which was casting, rolling, forging, extrusion, and created two different companies. So there's a basic company and another company. And that caused some breakup of the Russian operation because we did everything there almost. Uh, and and that, uh, that changed all of Alcoa, not just Alcoa, Russia. Uh, another thing that happened was the currency, while I was in Russia, it was between 28 and 31 uh, rubles per dollar the whole time I was there. Uh, hardly any effect uh, in currency adjustments. Uh, but lately, uh, it's it's running close to 70 rubles per dollar now, and that causes a little disruption for an international company, as you can imagine. And now the uh, the stress that you have politically between the two countries, I think, is causing a lot of concern. One of the specific countries that was sanctioned uh, a week and a half ago was Rusal Corporation, and the owner of that, who is Oleg Deripaska, he is the individual that we actually bought these plants from. Uh, so I could see uh, some increased issues between uh, the United States and Russia causing some issues in the aluminum industry that's there. Uh, while I was there, uh, didn't have any of those issues. Uh, uh, but today, I think it's uh, it's a little different. Uh, however, if, if you look at the whole big picture, Alcoa and Russia continue to cooperate. Uh, three weeks ago, when we were putting sanctions on each other, we were also putting uh, astronauts and cosmonauts in the same rocket to go up to the space shuttle. Uh, so we are cooperating in some areas, and my hope is that we can get back to that and, and do it in a mutually respectful way. Well, that's all for now. For more information about global business and culture, visit www.internationalhub.org and be sure to subscribe to Cultural Conversations with International Hub. Thank you.